Welcome to the Hidden Things and Hidden Things. This is Hidden Things and Hidden Things episode 14, concerned with the first half of chapter 11, where we get to hear Calliope sing, I guess, sort of. Get to read about hearing about Calliope singing. I'm not any good at writing music lyrics, which is why you don't ever get to hear what she sings. What race is Gershon? Uh, he is definitely not the same race as Phagos. Phagos is way, way, way older. Phagos, Phagos was old when cavemen were still trying to figure out how to like bang two sticks together to kill somebody. So no, he's not the same. I, I give this away, I think, pretty clearly not too long after this, but Gershon is essentially a satyr who sort of retired. Potbelly little dude with kind of bow legs. And like with most of the hidden things, there's usually pretty strict rules about how their existence is now prescribed. When he says no strip clubs for Gershon, not anymore. He's serious. That's probably like a rule or he loses a lot of what's keeping him undercover for the same reason that you really, really don't want Gluin to uh, laugh. You probably don't want to see uh, Gershon see you know, a naked butt. In this section, we're also getting a flashback. Uh, no, we're not getting a flashback. We're getting a dream about something that already happened in the book. And it's not the same as it was the first time that we saw it. And the reason for that is because it's being screwed with by Walker. We haven't really learned that yet, but Walker is trying to glean information from Calliope directly about where she is and what's going on so that he can find her. But, and that's essentially what's happening. When she dreams right now, Walker is messing with it. And that's going to continue for at least a little while longer. So there's a little bit of an evolution here because in my first draft, I had it kind of weirdly in the back of my head that at some point in time, Vicus had been watching Calliope when she was a kid as a potential somebody. So I wrote this scene to a certain extent. I wrote it kind of with that in mind that, that Vicus had sort of been there in the past or had inserted himself in her past or so. I don't know. That didn't end up being something that really worked for me for the rest of the story. So I changed the scene to be, I, I liked the scene. I didn't need it for Calliope and I didn't need Calliope to have once known Vicus. So, or even seen him or anything like that. But I did want that to kind of be around and be in the background as something that happened. And it made more sense because of its bitterness and its weirdness and its sort of intensely selfish point of view and actions in that scene. It really works for Mikey. And since Mikey and Calliope are sort of serving the same role, I changed it around, put Calliope into the scene because of the weird thing that Walker's doing with the, with the dream. But it's, it's, it's Mikey and Josh's thing. And Calliope knows the story because Josh probably told it to her because he's, you know, some point in time they're laying around and she wants to know what the scar on his arm is about. The fact that she can push back and say, this wasn't me, this didn't happen to me, this wasn't... She can't entirely nail down exactly whose memory it is, but she knows it's not hers and she can push back enough is indicative of the fact that Walker doesn't exactly have her in a vice. She's a stubborn cuss. And if she can fight back against Fakos, she can certainly give Walker a run for his money. We also learn a little bit more. There's a few hints that I drop in here because Gershon, he's not as, he's not anywhere near as old as uh, Phagos, but he's certainly older and he definitely knows a lot about, he's, being a stationary hidden thing that doesn't need to hide quite as much sort of means that he gets to hear all the rumors, I think. He's, he's sort of, you know, things come to him because everyone knows where he's at. So he's easy to find. Not always true, but at least in some cases it is. And because of that, he tends to know a lot about this. So there's a few more hints about Vicus or what Vicus is. I throw out a couple of, or at least the name that everybody uses a different name for Vicus. And in this case, um, Gershon has his own name for him. And that name is somewhat, it's, it's another clue. It's another wrong name that's almost right for what Vicus is. 
It's not ever spelled out correctly. I mean, it's a, it's a nod in the direction of Grigori, which are, you know, angelic beings from, I think, apocryphal biblical passages that are supposed to be, they didn't pick a side, they just sort of watched, like they are, they are like sort of professional winged observers. And so there's a nod in the direction that, you know, that, that's a name for him, except it's not quite the right name. It's a name that was given to his type of people by people who didn't really understand what he really was. It's not wrong, but it's not really right either. Like most of the other names. I mean, Vicus truly, his people don't exist anymore. You can't know what they are because they sort of, they hid themselves by not, by becoming not any one thing. In fact, I'll be, I'm actually writing, working on the second draft of a short story about that very thing, about the fact that um, there are real problems with trying to actually know what Vicus is. So that, that'll actually be a story coming up in the Little Things collection that will be recording and releasing this summer. Walker doesn't care in this questioning thing about whether or not her parents like her, whether or not they're going to like Vicus, or whether or not Josh is... This is just the torture part of the questioning. He's trying to rile her up. He's poking around to find her defensive soft spots where she's going to get really up in arms about something. They didn't like him. And he doesn't know. Walker is wandering around a little bit in this thing and sort of just swinging a bat around until he finds something that'll break. So he's poking at her relationship with her family. He's poking at her family's reaction to Josh. And he's getting it wrong. I mean... Her family never meets Josh. She never saw Josh when she took him out here. He doesn't know that. So he's, he's not infallible. He's not all-knowing. Neither is Vicus, although he's probably a little bit closer to it than Walker is. And the reason Walker misses a lot of cues here is that he's not... He has a role, and he would be a lot better at this if he were actually embracing his role, but he's given up most of what made him appropriate to be the goad which is what people call him later. Since he gave up a lot of that, he, he misses now. He's, he's not on the money as he could be in another situation. I didn't call him the goad for... I'm sure the book was done. I, you know, I think maybe I threw the names in there a couple times, but I never really thought about the goad and the guide and that sort of poetic duality to it until well into it. I knew that that's what his job was, but I never put a name to it. And then for a while, I didn't really put it into the text because I couldn't decide if it was incredibly corny or not. Um, eventually I came to the decision that I didn't care. I just liked it. And in it went. So the karaoke scene, I'm, this is one of the first scenes. I, I mean, this, this was definitely one of those scenes that I think every so often I will call it the scenes that I think exist exactly as I wrote them in the first draft. The karaoke scene is basically exactly the way I wrote it in the first draft, except I think I added a waitress. I think the waitress's lines were actually Vicus's lines at one point in time, but the lines were the same. The conversation, the description, the songs, all of that stuff is exactly the same. That was not inspired by Maureen Johnson's 13 Little Blue Envelopes ABBA karaoke as much as I might like it to be. Sorry, Maureen. There's two parts to that. Uh, one is I was drugged to a karaoke night um, in this place that basically looked exactly like I described Gershon's place. Um, and I had much the same reaction to it that Calliope did. 
for a number of reasons. And then there's a part of it, you can find this on YouTube. There's a, a dig around and you will find this little viral, I think intentionally viral video of, of uh, Jewel dressing up as nerdy office assistant with bad teeth and bad hair and, you know, sort of frumpy clothing and that sort of thing and going up and singing Jewel songs at a karaoke night and, and just blowing the tops of people's skulls clean off. And then, you know, doing three or four of those and then disappearing and then coming back as herself, as Jewel, and doing a few more songs and having a bunch of people come up and say, you just met this amazing girl who did all of your songs. You guys should totally do a song together or something. And they didn't get that, that sense of like taking some of people who've, who've set their expectations for a karaoke night at what you would call a karaoke night level and getting their doors blown off by somebody who can really sing. And to be fair, uh, there, there's more than one reason to make that um, be an inspiration because uh, while I was writing this, I'm, I saw Jewel in concert and I'd seen her in concert a couple other times. And the way that she, uh, uh you know, has kind of a good person, uh, establishes a, a strong personal connection with the crowd. She was definitely an inspiration for, if not the music, although there is definitely one moment where there is, where the song that Calliope is singing, not here, but elsewhere in the story that the song Calliope is singing is totally a Jewel song. Um, in my head anyway. Uh, aside from that, just that the, the rapport that she establishes with the audience is definitely inspired by that musician. I would say it's a, she's a combination. Calliope is a combination of Jewel and Liz Fair and, uh, Gwen Stefani in my head uh, for, for better or worse, people will like or not like particular, that particular combination, but, uh, that's, that's who it is in my head. Liz Fair in particular is a, a good Midwestern girl who has the, certainly in her younger, in her earlier music shows the same disdain for the Midwest that Calliope was wrestling with at this stage in her life. So, um, there's a lot of reasons to call back to that particular artist. So there's a whole bunch of that kind of stuff there. I imagine Liz Fair would also probably rock a karaoke night if she were so inclined. It's come up now twice. I think that Gluen has asked, well, Gluen asked once, like, do you have a talent you create things, you write, you perhaps sing. And then this, it's come up again. And the fact that she was in a band, actually, this is the third time now. So third time's the charm. Um, Cause Vicus was very interested in the fact that she used to sing when it came up at the club, when she was talking to Tony. So this is the third time. And this is when we find out for real what that's like, like, is she actually any good? And the fact of the matter is she's fantastic. And it never happened for her professionally. Well, we, we'll find out why it didn't happen for her um, later, but basically, you know, it's her fault. So it's all her fault. So yeah, it, it is important. And I'm going to talk more about why it's important later in the story when we get closer to the point where it actually is important, where it matters. But the, the basis of it is, is that she is creating stuff, which in my particular worldview is putting part of yourself in the, into the world, making the world more by taking part of you and putting yourself into it more than you are already simply in it in a self-contained package. You're breaking off a piece of yourself and putting it out there for other people to share. And that makes the world bigger or better or different or something. And that's what she does. Not every singer does it. Not every writer does it. Not every creator does it. But if they're good, even if they're only good 
once or twice in their whole lives, it matters. And that's why Calliope, for whatever reason, that's why she matters. That's one of the reasons that she matters. That's why, that's why the fact that she sings matters. So next time, we have a lot of dream sequences, sort of. A lot of dreamy stuff. Dreams inside of dreams inside of dreams. And also a gas station. And also, I think, Castle Rock, maybe. Mm, are we not to Castle Rock yet? I think we're getting to Castle Rock. We're getting close. We'll see. Maybe that's next chapter. Goblins are on the horizon, but I do not know how, how close the horizon is. Next time, we will find out. Mm-hmm.